0: I grew up in church, and so about this time, uh, every year when I was a kid, as Easter was approaching, we would start to read the stories in the Gospels that speak of Jesus' death. In my Sunday school class as a kid, and the messages on Sunday morning in the sanctuary, and even in our home, we would read and reread and retell over and over again the stories of Jesus' death on the cross, I'm not sure why, but during that time, I don't know if it was the way people read the stories or retold them, or maybe it was the Bible that I had that had all of Jesus' words and read, but the words of Jesus, the words that he spoke from the cross always seemed to jump out at me. There are seven statements that Jesus makes while he's hanging on the cross. The first one is this one, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And then Jesus, a little bit later, looks at the thief that's hanging next to him and says, today, you will be with me in paradise. The gospel of John tells us that Jesus looked down at his mother and said, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Jesus looks up to the heavens and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says with an earshot of all of those around the cross, I am thirsty. And then as the end is drawing near, he looks back to the Father, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then as he breathes his last, he says, it is finished. It's the first statement that Jesus makes from the cross that rubs me the wrong way. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. When I read that, I think to myself, what? Jesus, what are you thinking? Why would you forgive these people? These people don't deserve to be forgiven. You shouldn't hang on the cross and forgive them. You should come down off the cross like a Marvel superhero and wipe these people off the face of the earth. These people don't deserve to be forgiven. You and 10,000 angels should come like the ultimate Avengers and get rid of these people. They don't deserve to be forgiven. They deserve to be destroyed doesn't Jesus know that that's what makes a blockbuster hit? And I've watched a lot of movies in my day and what I love is when the good guy against all odds fights back and he defeats the bad guys. He puts them in their place. Now, when I read this story, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's some part of me that wants Jesus to do that here. That's not what Jesus does. Now, Before you judge me for wanting Jesus to destroy people, you have to understand something. In my life, I've come to know Jesus. I love Jesus. And Jesus was crucified at the hands of an angry mob. I don't want the people who hung Jesus on the cross, who beat him and mocked him, I don't want them to get off scot free. I don't want the people who drove nails into his hands and hung a sign over his head, I don't want them to miss out on what's coming to them. I don't want the people who put a crown of thorns on his brow and drove a spear through his side to go unpunished. I don't want Jesus from the cross to forgive them. I want Jesus to get revenge. I want Jesus to even the score. I want Jesus to to settle it. Let me be a little more spiritual. I want justice to be served. but That's not what Jesus does. Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, suffering caused by their hands, Jesus looks down at them from the cross and says, Father, forgive them. Now, it's clear at this point that Jesus and I are at odds on how he should handle this situation. So I have to stop and consider What does Jesus know that I don't know? Why, when it makes perfectly good sense for Jesus to come off of the cross and show them who's boss, to even the score, to to measure out some justice for these people who have hung him on the cross, why does Jesus choose instead to shower them with forgiveness and with grace? The short answer is that the cross is not a judgment seat. It's not a place where Jesus gathers everyone to measure out the judgment of God and to to pour out God's wrath against all who have sinned against him. That's not what the cross is about. Rather, the cross is a place where Jesus satisfies the justice of God so that all of humanity will not experience God's wrath. The cross is not a seat of judgment. The cross is a place of forgiveness and grace. In fact, what Jesus is actually doing at the cross is he is initiating a culture of grace that flows right from God's heart of love to all of humanity. This is what Jesus is doing in the cross. And so while I think Jesus should do something different when he's hanging there than just forgive the people who put him up on the cross, while I think Jesus should say something different or act differently, the reality is what Jesus says in this moment is exactly what he has to say to align with his intention. Jesus is creating a culture of grace. And so as he hangs on the cross, he looks at the people who put him there and he says, Father, forgive them." He's creating a culture of grace. We should know that Jesus wants to create a culture of grace because way back at the beginning of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, in verse 12, he says to them, right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's clear in the Lord's Prayer that what Jesus wants is for us to come to God to be forgiven and... He wants us to forgive those who sin against us, those who owe us something. And if we miss this, just a couple of verses later, after the Lord's Prayer concludes, Jesus expounds on this statement. It is the only statement in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus expounds on. He says, for if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive those who sin against you, then your heavenly Father won't forgive you either. You see, Jesus all along wanted to create a culture of grace. He taught that to his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, and he demonstrated it when he hung on the cross. And right between those two realities, after he taught his disciples how to pray and before he forgave the people who hung him on the cross, Jesus tells a story, a parable, that shows up in Matthew 18, and it expounds on this idea, this concept of a culture of grace. It's a simple parable to understand, but it has profound implications for us as we try to follow Christ today. This parable, this story that Jesus told, has three characters. The first character is the king. The king comes to his servants, and he wants to settle his accounts with them. The second character in the story is servant of the king. We'll call him servant number one. Servant number one owes the king a lot of money. 10,000 bags of gold. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story. It's a parable. And Jesus sets up this story in such a way to say, this man owes a boatload of money. Okay? In fact, the number that Jesus chooses is so astronomical in that day that, that, in essence, what Jesus is saying, there's no way that this could ever be paid back. This, this debt that this man has, it's so big we can't even fathom it. Okay? This, this is what Jesus is setting the story up as. So get the picture. Servant one owes the king a lot of money, so much money that he can't pay it back. He comes to the king Kneels before him and says, I will do whatever it takes to pay this debt back. To which the people listening to the story must have laughed out loud. There is no way that this man is going to pay back all of this money in his lifetime. It's not going to happen. And then, in this story, the king does what only the king can do. The king, in an instant, in a moment, forgives this man's debt. It's an unpayable debt. The weight of it is sitting on his shoulders. And this man, kneeling before the king, all of a sudden hears these great words Your debt has been forgiven. You don't owe anything anymore. You came in with a, an unpayable debt, a weight on your shoulders, but you're walking away from this encounter debt free. Dave Ramsey would be proud. You're walking away from this encounter. You don't owe anything anymore. It's a generous and gracious act of the king to forgive this man's debt. This man has experienced the utter relief of forgiveness. He leaves this encounter, and right on the heels of this generous and gracious act from the king, servant one encounters a fellow servant, the third character in the story. We'll call him servant number two servant number two owes servant number one money it's a small amount especially when you compare it to how much servant one owed to the king in fact if you were to put their debt side by side servant one the debt that he owed to the king is 600,000 times more than the debt that servant two owes to him We expect in this story to hear that servant one now is going to forgive servant two, right? Servant one has just gotten a gift that he could never earn, that he could never get to in his life. The king graciously and generously forgave him. We expect now servant one to turn and say, dude, today's your lucky day. I just got forgiven a huge debt. You don't owe me anything. But what happens is servant two has to pay up the debt immediately. Servant one, after having received generosity and grace from the king, turns and looks at servant two and says, you owe me. Instead of being generous and gracious like the king was to him, he chooses to be greedy. He chooses to demand that this servant will pay him. The turn in the story is jolting to us because we look at the story and we say, man, you just were forgiven a huge debt. You can share the wealth. You can pass on this generosity and this grace. You can help them experience what you've experienced, but that's not what he does. The stinginess of servant one backfires, right? Because the king finds out what's going on. He hears that that the servant has not been gracious. And so the king calls servant one back in and says, I changed my mind. I thought I had forgiven your debt, but as it turns out, I'm not going to. You still owe me. Now go to jail. And then the king drives home the point of Jesus' story when he says to servant one, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just like I had Now, this parable, probably lots of things that we could learn from it, but there are two main lessons that I want us to think about this morning. Lesson number one is this, you can be forgiven. Jesus tells this story to help us understand something about himself and something about his kingdom. He begins the story by saying, this is just like the kingdom of heaven. And so what's inherent in this story, Jesus is trying to communicate to us something about the values of his kingdom. And the main idea in this story is that the king in this story is a king who offers forgiveness. The man that appears before the king has an unpayable debt. He cannot pay it off. But when he appears before the king, lo and behold, the king gives him grace and generosity and he forgives the debt. He washes it away. Some of you are here in this room today and you have on your shoulders the weight of your sin. There are faults and failures and mistakes. There are sinful behaviors and patterns in your life and you are carrying the weight of that. The people sitting next to you might not know that this weight is on your shoulders, but it is there nonetheless. Because you know that there are things in your life, there are things in the way that you're living right now that are not pleasing to God and you're carrying that weight moment by moment and day by day. And here's what I want you to know today and please don't miss this whatever weight you're carrying today because of your sin, you can be forgiven. Because that's who the king is, and that's what the king does. Our God is a gracious God. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. His mercy and his compassion, it is new every morning. There's nothing that you've said or done that will prohibit God from forgiving you. That's who he is, and that's what he does. And so you came in here today and that weight is on your shoulders, but I want you to know if you come before the king today and you offer that sin, that fault, that failure, that mistake to him, in that moment, I want you to know God will say to you, I forgive you. We know that because Jesus, when they hung him on the cross, looked at the people who put him there and said, Father, forgive them. The king forgives. You can be forgiven. Second lesson, though, that I think from this parable, and this is the main one, this is the one Jesus is really trying to communicate to us, is this those who are forgiven must be forgiving. Those who are forgiven must be forgiving. This whole story comes because Peter asks a question Lord, How many times should I forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? Up to seven times? Now watch carefully to what Peter's doing here because he's doing two things. The first thing he's doing is he wants Jesus to set a limit. He wants a line. He wants to know, I'll forgive my brother or sister up to this point, but once they go over there, then I can get them. Right? He wants a line. But Peter's trying to appear to be godly. Because the normal teaching of the day from the rabbis is that you should forgive three times. Peter thinks that following Jesus should require us to behave more graciously than the normal teaching of the day. So Peter says, should I forgive them up to seven times? Almost like, Jesus, I still want you to give me a limit so I know when I can get them. But I want my limit to be higher than everyone else because I want to be more godly than them. Jesus hears Peter's question and says, Peter, take your number, multiply it by 70. Now, Jesus does not mean to say you can only need to forgive 490 times. Jesus takes Peter's number, which is above the standard of the day, and blows it out of the water because Jesus wants to communicate this point. If you're still counting, you've missed the point. See, what Jesus is trying to communicate in this story is that in the kingdom of God, we don't come to the cross just to get something from God. He's telling us that we come to the cross to actually become like God. The cross isn't just a place where we get our sins forgiven. The cross is a place where we learn to forgive others just like God forgave us. This is what Jesus is communicating. This is why he tells the story. We are astounded that servant one, after having received generous grace from the king, would in turn look at another servant who owes him a little bit of money and say, pay up, buddy. We're astounded by that. But the point of Jesus telling that story that way is to say, this is our temptation. It's our temptation when we receive grace from God to then turn to others who offend us and withhold forgiveness from them. And Jesus is trying to say, that's not how I want it to be among my people. I want you to become like God. I want you, just as you have been forgiven generously and graciously, I want you in turn to forgive others generously and graciously without limit. If you're still counting, you've missed the point. Paul makes this connection in Colossians chapter 3 when he writes this letter to these Christ followers in Colossae and he says, since God chose you to be the holy people that He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender hearted mercy, with humility, with kindness, with gentleness, and with patience. He says you must make allowance for the faults of others. And then this phrase you must forgive anyone who offends you. Not some of the people who offend you, not only the people that you like, not only your really good friends because you want to keep the relationship, the passage says you must forgive anyone who offends you. And here's why. Remember, the Lord forgave you and you didn't deserve it. So you must forgive others. You see, this teaching What it means for us is that when someone sins against you, when someone wrongs you, when someone offends you, you have to forgive them. Forgiving them doesn't mean that you're not angry at them, you're not mad with them. It doesn't mean that you weren't hurt or it's not that big of a deal or that you don't have in your heart this desire for them to face justice for what they've done. None of that matters. What matters is you forgive the people who offend you because the Lord forgave you And the Lord commands you to forgive them. This is a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching because the idea of forgiving anyone and everyone when they offend us seems like the way of fools. And in the eyes of the world, it is the way of fools. But to those of us who are being saved, this is the way of Jesus i thought about this hard teaching this week, and just in my own processing of this idea, I wrote this paragraph. I just want to share it with you. Following Jesus means that even when it seems foolish, we follow anyway. It means that we trust that Jesus knows exactly what he is doing on the cross when he chooses forgiveness over justice and grace over wrath. We trust that his purposes are better accomplished through a culture of grace than they would be through a culture of judgment. We trust that more than helping people know who and what is right, Jesus longs to have people reconciled in relationship with him and with each other. And that somehow, if that happens, it is better for the world than if everyone is simply put in their place or is punished appropriately for their wrongdoing. You see, the reason Jesus doesn't hand out judgment and wrath at the cross is because he wants to create a culture of grace because at the end of the day, what matters to Jesus is reconciliation. Paul seems to have the same idea in mind when he writes in Ephesians chapter two about the cross and about the work that it accomplished. He says, for he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one new humanity. He's reconciled them to each other. And then after doing that, he takes both of those groups, now a one new humanity, and he reconciles them to God through the cross. You see, what Paul sees when he looks at the cross is this idea that the cross is about reconciliation. It's about reconciling people to each other and it is about reconciling people to God and that somehow that is more important than just putting people in their place. This idea seems to carry through to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul talks about the fact that reconciliation is what opens the door for us to be transformed. It's what opens the door for us to become the people that God wants us to be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So we implore you, be reconciled to God, Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what that passage tells us is that God wants to reconcile the world to himself and reconcile us to each other. And when that happens, the door for transformation opens and we can actually become the people that God wants us to be. We don't have to understand how it all works, but we do need to follow in the way of Jesus. We need to do what he is asking us to do because when we do, we come to God to receive forgiveness for our unpayable debts. And having received generous and gracious gifts from God, we in turn share those with the people and the world around us so that they experience his generous and gracious gifts as well when that happens, we are reconciled to God and to each other, and that opens a door for our lives to be transformed, for their lives to be transformed, and for the world that we live in to become a different and better place. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them.